are going to be jumping around through scriptures. Our, our chapter, or it's Genesis 22 this morning, um, and we're going to be kind of jumping around. So hopefully uh, I can keep up with my slides and uh, you guys won't get too, uh, too far behind. But, but this, this chapter 22 of Genesis, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, is one of the most amazing chapters in the scriptures. Uh, man, I, I tell you, it, 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 to me it's one of the greatest chapters because it foreshadows so much of what's going on with Jesus and the future. Uh, we ended last week with Isaac being three years old and what was going on with all that. And, and you can go back online and listen uh, to, to the earlier sermons if you want, if you've missed a week. But, but we ended with him being three years old. Thirty years have passed between chapter 21 and 22. So Isaac is about 33 years old. We don't know much what happens in those 30 years. But Abraham's faith has been slowly growing over that time, and he's handed this faith down to his son. And in Psalms 47, it says, uh, it's written um, about Jesus here, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. And in John 5, 39, it says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And the reason why I want to bring those two verses up is all Scripture points toward Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus turns around and points toward God, okay? So that's your connection here. All these Scriptures point toward Jesus. And in Genesis 22, like I said, it's one of the greatest chapters of the Bible. It shows us how everything in the Old Testament really does point toward Jesus. Again, if you were to ask me one of the important passages, I would say this is it. I would include this chapter. It says in uh, verse 1, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, uh, he said to him, Abraham, here I, uh, here I am, he replied. Now, God's, uh, you know, God tests us for, uh, for our benefit, not for his benefit. Okay, God wants to see what our reaction is going to be. Think of Peter. Uh, you know, he, he told Peter, you will deny me three times and then you'll flee. And Peter says, well, <laughs> Come on, give me a break. I'm not going to do that, Lord. Okay, he says it a little differently, but uh, who knows how he said it. But, but he said, no way, that's not going to happen. Yet three times that night, what did he do? He denied Christ, and they fled. He believed he was stronger, and really it was a test for him to show him his weakness and where he needed to rely on the Lord. When we are weak, who is strong? He is strong. We rely on the Lord when we are weak, and that's what is important. It, you know, it, it's often when we think that we're strong that we're actually kind of weak. When we get a little too cocky, when we get a little too out there, we get ahead of our skis. As it's, any, any skiers in here? Okay, for what other analogy can I use here? You know what I'm talking about, ahead of your skis? If you lean too far, far forward when you're skiing, what happens? You go rolling over, Okay. Uh, think of, well, I can date myself here. Remember the Saturday morning sports and the scene at the very front where the guy wrecks on the, okay, he got ahead of his skis. Okay, there we go. Now you're understanding that. But, but that's what happens when we think we're strong. Peter talks a lot about tests in First Peter. If you want to you know, go and read about different types of tests, he says that our tests are really about our hearts. And we're blinded by some things that are, that are in our hearts because the heart can be deceitful. And, you know, unless we acknowledge those things, we never correct it. 
as, you know, I'm dealing with my eight-year-old all the time, you know, and I'm trying to point out things, and I, oh, and sometimes I just hold my tongue because I'm thinking, I've already pointed out like four or five times, you know, four or five things right in a row, and I need to, need to keep my mouth shut on this one, you know, but we have to point out the little things so they'll correct them so they don't, uh, don't do what? Become big things, right? That's what Peter talks about. Trials have a way of showing our weaknesses so we can correct it. And it's likened to a refiner's fire. You know, you heat up the gold, and, and, it, and then once it's heated up, you scrape off the top, the impurities, and it purifies the gold. And this is what trials of faith are all about, is refining us. So God tested Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will, t- I will show you. Now, we may be, you know, maybe thinking only son, but Abraham has two sons, right? We've all learned that. Ishmael is his son. But as we talked about, Ishmael was a work of the flesh. God promised him a son. They got a little too antsy, and, and finally his wife goes, you know, as customary at the time, here, take a maid servant, go have a child with her, and we will ha- that child will be our child. Well, God said, well, you got ahead of your skis in a sense. That is the work of the flesh. So I'm not talking about that son. When he's saying only son, he's talking about the only son of their flesh, uh, Abraham and his wife. The miracle child. See, the work of the flesh isn't recognized in this situation. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. This is the first time in the Bible the word love is used. The love of the father for his son. See, the focus here is not Abraham. It is the father's love for his son. That's the whole focus of this chapter. It's a foreshadowing of what would happen between God and and his son, Jesus. Verse 2, it says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him. There is a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Now, we know Moriah as Golgotha or Calvary, the same mountain 2,000 years later that Jesus would be, uh, uh, you know, that Christ would be uh, taken to. And the word Moriah in Hebrew means foreseen of Jehovah, and Jehovah is the name of the Lord, okay? So, so here's a foreshadowing, a foreseeing of this. And the Lord set into motion what would happen to Christ himself 2,000 or so years later from this point. So he could have the relationship that he wanted between you and I. See, our problem is that sin gets in front of that relationship between God, sin of just life, and then we come to him and we accept that he is Lord and Savior of our life, and then that relationship starts to build. And the only reason we can have that relationship is because of what Jesus did on the cross. See, the cross was not plan B. It was the plan of salvation. In Revelation 13, it says, "...the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world." In God's mind, Christ was already on the cross because God knew. God knew what man would do and what he would do to correct that. Okay, the word uh, offering in Genesis 22, the word means to, to lift up. So God tells him to lift Isaac to him. 
And you remember what Jesus says in John 12? It's been a while since we studied John 12, but, but Jesus says, And now when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He's talking about his death here. When he is lifted up, it'll draw people to him. And now in Psalms 22, David had written a thousand years uh, before the crucifixion, thousand years after this with Abraham. It's kind of prophetic, and Jesus is speaking through David. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says that on the cross. There are times when we feel forsaken. Pain, sorrows, or, or loss in our life. And we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a cry to say, listen to me. It's a cry to say, rescue me. I mean, this is Christianity 101. And when this happens, we need to get our eyes off the circumstance because the circumstance drags us down. When we focus on the circumstances, we keep our eyes on that. We worry. We think about it all night. We can't sleep. We do all those things. I mean, some people take it to the point of getting ulcers, and it affects their bodies. It affects their work environment. It affects their friendships. It affects all sorts of life because we're focused on the situation instead of the thing that matters, which is God, because the devil uses that stuff. Well, if God were real, I mean, would he let you really go through this situation? See, we, we, we do not judge God on our circumstances. He loved his son. He allowed him to go through the pain on the cross because there was no other way for him to have a relationship in, uh, with us and for us to be saved. Sometimes God allows us to go through painful situations in our own life for the sake of someone else. Imagine that. God puts you through a difficult situation so somebody else can recognize God's hand in this world. See, we think it's all about us and our little world. You know, my eight-year-old thinks it's all about him. My three-and-a-half-year-old thinks it's all about him. So you know how that can conflict in the household, you know, two worlds colliding. But that's how we are. We think it's about us when God's going, no, 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 I'm letting you go through this. And we're like, letting? And he's like, yeah, I'm letting you go through that because I want to bring somebody else into the kingdom or I want to turn somebody's life back around toward me. It's, it's kind of hard to get our minds wrapped around that. We forget that God uses us to reach others. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all troubles. So that, we cannot, uh, so that we can comfort those in any trouble and w- with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so we also comfort, uh, so also comfort our comfort abounds through Christ. So our trials, again, allow us to reach others in this world. That's talking about, talking about looking at the silver lining of a difficult situation. Maybe God will use me in this situation. I don't know how, but maybe God will. And that's the silver lining. The true message of the cross is not me-focused. And unfortunately, today's culture, as we get further and further into it, it's all about me, you know. It's all about my opinion. But the true message here of Christ is others-focused. It's really about blessing others instead of what I will get out of it. 
Unfortunately, too often we go to church or we go to uh, different things or we have certain relationships or friendships, and it's all about what am I getting out of this friendship or relationship and, or, or this church or that church or, or this event or that event instead of what am I contributing to that? What am I doing for the Lord here? Why does the Lord have me here? Like Tulare United, you could go, oh, I don't really want to go. I mean, Sunday night, we don't... I mean, I grew up going to church Sunday night. Every Sunday night, we had something going on, uh, you know, back in the South. And Sunday, Wednesday, and, and Sunday, Sunday morning, uh, Sunday night, and Wednesday. And then during the summer, every day, we were basically up at the church playing as kids, playing around and doing different things, playing in the gym and all that kind of stuff. Culture's a little different now. We, we kind of like going, oh, it's a Sunday night, and I, gotta, I don't want to go to that event. But think about how you can go to that event and you can encourage somebody else. You can go get a, you know, build a relationship within this community, start up a friendship that might turn into a lifelong friendship. Who knows? Maybe that's not what you're looking for. I don't know, but I'm just saying. Here, I'm going to get off on tangents. I need to figure out where I'm at here. So our focus should be on what am I doing for the Lord? Or what does the Lord want me to do here? We need to put our focus on the meaning and the promises of God because he will never leave us or forsake us, as the scriptures say. He is with us until the end of the age. He tells Jeremiah, he tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And you go on and read that, and there's more to that thought there, but I'm going to leave it there. But we need to remind ourselves that when we're going through this life, through adversity, that God is for us. God is not against us. God wants us to succeed, but he wants us to succeed in the right way. He puts us in the right path, and sometimes that path is not an easy path. It goes on and says in Genesis 22, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Now, as we read this, we have to kind of wonder what's going through Abraham's mind. Is that you, Lord? Is it really you? Or is that the, the adversary, the devil, the uh, Satan? Is that, is that the one? Is he trying to trick me here? Because, I mean, this is a big ask. This is a huge deal. Is, is God showing himself to be like all the other gods? Because in that region during that time, this is not unheard of to go and sacrifice a child to a god. But here the one true God is saying, here, I want you to do this. And he's thinking, well, is he just like every other God I've known in my life? Because in the very beginning, Abraham was not a believer. When he came from, from the, you know, the, the area of Ur and uh, the, Chaldea, you know, the Chaldeans and all that, as he came across there, he wasn't a believer. I mean, demand, <laughs> demanding a human sacrifice. You can imagine the... the is this really God? But Abraham also knew the voice of God, so he knew who it was. And I'm sure he's thinking, wait, this is the promised child. What are you asking me to do? Because you, you told me this is a promised child, yet you're wanting to take him away. Uh, you know, but oftentimes we're more concerned with the blessing than doing God's will. If God said to you, your name is in the book of life, that is the last blessing I will give you. Would it be enough? 
You see, God doesn't exist to make us happy. He wants us to have joy in life, but joy and happiness is, is two different things. God doesn't exist just to give us material things. Would you be able to do what God is asking Abraham to do? Or would you be like Jonah and run the opposite way? Nope. I'm out of here. It's not prudent at this juncture, one president used to say. I mean, how did Abraham deal with this? Verse 3 says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took him with two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out from the place God told him about. The, the way this is actually written in the Hebrew as you study it, uh, this is like a, a run-on sentence. Think of Paul in the New Testament, how he just keeps going on and goes and, and, and. and the, you know, uh, We went through and put English punctuation here. This is more of a run-on sentence, kind of strung together. And, and it signifies an immediate obedience. We'd like to break it up in readable English form for, for pastors to be able to read from the front, even though I haven't learned how to do that that well. But I'm just saying, you know, readable form. But we lose the idea of him immediately doing this. This is the opposite of what we just learned with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The angels come to him and said, hey, you need to go. And they're kind of dilly-dallying around and they're gathering stuff. And the angel's like, no, you need to go now. You know, he's trying to push them out the door. I don't think he was enthusiastic about doing it at all. But he didn't linger. How could Abraham do this? It's called faith. A lifetime of following God's commands. During the 30 years of Abraham's faith, it, it had really developed here. And, and Abraham realized that when he took things into his own hands, as he you know, did several times, like, oh, this is really my sister, even though it's my wife, but I'm not going to tell everybody it's my wife. He'd done that twice in a 25-year span there, and he'd learned that he really messed it up. So finally, when God says to do something, he's actually out there doing it. Abraham finally realized that, that man, I have to do the things that God wants me to do. Uh, you know, because the early years, he messed it up. But he's matured. So he's operating out of this deep faith. He knows what God has promised him. He knows that Isaac is, the, uh, you know, is supposed to be the lineage of Christ. So he knows that God's going to figure it out some way. So he's trusting God here. Isaac had no children here. He wasn't married yet. If God wants to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham's thinking, well, okay, but God's going to work this out because he is the promise. Maybe he's going to raise him from the dead. I don't know. But he's going to do what he's going to do. Now, someone could say, well, Alan, you're reading a little too much into this. Well, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's what we've been talking about. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise from the dead and so, in a manner of speaking, he did not receive Isaac back from, uh, or he did receive Isaac back from death. You see, the promise was through Isaac, so Abraham knew that God was going to figure it out. God is God. God can do anything. God had somehow turned him and his wife back years-wise so they could have children. So God knew he could do, I mean, Abraham knew that God could, could 
produce miracles. He didn't ask, well, God, I need a a three-line plan here. I need to understand exactly what's going on. Could you write it all up so I can look it over? No, he didn't do that. He just knew that God was going to get them through it. No matter the situation we're in, God will get you through it. You, you, know, you ask how, and I say, and this is difficult because I've gone through some stuff where I'm sitting there going, why or how or what's going on, you know? But I have to say, it doesn't matter how. God is just going to get you through it. You don't need the three-point plan. And we think, oh, yes, it does matter. It matters a lot. Well, that just means that we need to grow in our faith. That just means that we got to put God more in a priority in our life. Until we get to the point where we say, God will get me through this. I don't understand how. I don't see a way through it myself, but God is going to get me through this. We don't have to figure out how God is going to do it. We just need to believe that he will. He will. That is what faith is. Seeing things as if it's already fulfilled. Knowing that God is going to get you to the other side. Verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. This reminds me of God looking off in the distance and seeing Calvary. I want to point out something that people have trouble with here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received on, uh, and on which you have, been, uh, you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So if a person stands up and accepts Christ, but then goes off and, and nothing ever changes in their life, Did they really receive Christ? I don't know. That's up to God. I don't choose that. I don't choose whether a person goes to heaven or hell. That's why the statement, go to hell, (laughs) you shouldn't, that's God's job to say that. We don't, no, take that out of your vocabulary. Because sometimes the scriptures say, well, if a person never changes, now they haven't really accepted Christ. We see the fruit. We can judge on certain things, but we don't judge heaven or hell. They heard, they thought they believed, never bore any fruit. Scriptures kind of allude to them not really being a believer. But if you really believe and you've hold, you know, you held firm to that, it goes on in verse 3 and it says, For what I received I pass on to you of first import, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He says according to the Scriptures twice here. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Not the New Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Verse 4 says that he was buried, then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, where in the Old Testament did it predict that Christ would die, be buried, and be raised on the third day? Well, the very first time is right here in Genesis 22. Because Isaac is a type of Christ, a representation. It took Abraham three days' journey to get there. In Abraham's heart, at that moment, Isaac died. Think about that. I have to go sacrifice my son. 
In his soul, in a sense, his son has already died. And then three days to get to Mount Moriah, and we will see that right before he stabs him with a knife, God stops him and provides an animal sacrifice in its place. And in Abraham's mind, Isaac just got resurrected because he was fixed to be dead. So we believe that God, when he says, according to the scriptures, He's probably got Genesis 22 in mind. A few others also, but Genesis is specifically this. In Hebrews eleven nineteen, it says, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise from the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. I believe that Abraham thought God had, uh, would have to resurrect Isaac. But this time he does it figuratively instead of literally. Abraham believed that if God wanted him to go through this, he would do it. He would go down the path that God had chosen for him to go. He didn't understand it. He didn't understand the ins and outs, the whys, or the time. He didn't understand any of that, but he was willing to go down God's path because of the promise that God gave him. God tells him to sacrifice him. He goes on a three-day journey, gets to the mountain, and God steps in to offer another sacrifice. If this doesn't speak to Jesus, I don't know what does. Genesis uh, 22.5, he said to the servant, Stay here with the donkey while uh, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. The word boy here is translated lad. In Hebrew, it means a person between 20 and 30 years old, somewhere right in there. Why do I bring this up? Well, grab a kid's Bible, and you will see Abraham with a little boy, you know, probably Brandon's age, eight years old, or something like that. No, this is a grown man here, okay? Uh, that's uh, the verbiage of, here, uh, of it here. But without reading the totality of the Scripture, the scripture uh, you know, we wouldn't understand that boy means young man. So he's around 30 to 33 years old, the same age as Christ, when Christ climbs that same hill. He goes on and says in, in verse 5, He said to the servants, Stay here with the donkey while I, I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, this speaks to me of when Jesus was on the cross and, and darkness fell all around and all work basically stopped because, I mean, this is something that hadn't occurred before. And this was between the Father and Son at this point. Father in heaven and Son, you know, Christ on the cross. Here it's Abraham and Isaac alone. It's the same concept. Unbelievers, unfortunately, read this and they write off the Bible based on this passage. How could you worship a God who wants human sacrifice? But God doesn't. He didn't sacrifice him. This was all about Abraham's willingness. This wasn't about the actual sacrifice. Remember when Israel was offering children to Molech later on? I mean, literally, Israel had gone into the promised land, had not cleared out the promised land, and come across people who literally were sacrificing their firstborn. Now, I've asked this before, and I'm going to ask it again. Who's the firstborn here? You guys would not be here if we worshiped the god Molech, okay? Think about that for a second. It's pretty sad. But Israel was doing this. And when God shows up and says, well, I don't need human sacrifice. I mean, this was revolutionary. Somebody, you know, something they'd never really heard before. 
Something else that's significant here. This is the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. Interesting. The law of first mention is, is, or or first use is kind of in effect here. This is the foundation of understanding worship. The very first time it is mentioned, it's not associated with singing. You know, we we say worship, what do we say? Oh, the, the, the band, right? That's what we're thinking when we say the word worship. But this is sacrifice. I mean, singing is great, but it's not the foundation or the only thing about worship. You will often hear me talk about, the, you know, we worship through the word. In other words, we get into the word. That's a, that's a form of worship or worship in singing or worship in communion or worship in fellowship or worship in serving and worship through sacrifice. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, our time, our effort, our energy, and yes, our, our money. Believe me, when I write my check, I, I'm sitting there thinking, I could use this money for other stuff, you know. But think about this. David once wrote, I will, not, uh, I will not worship God with that that costs me nothing. If it's not a sacrifice, is it really worship? To truly worship God, it involves sacrifice, something that costs us. In John 12, uh, 12, Mary exemplifies this, and when she broke open that alabaster jar, about a year's worth of wages, and, and spread it over Jesus' feet and cleaned his feet as they were getting ready to eat at the table and, and so forth. It was her dowry. Uh, she was keeping it. Uh, it's probably her dowry. We're not uh, so sure, but her father was gone. It's the only thing left that she had to, to give to a man who was to marry her because that was tradition that if, if uh, you know, a man wanted to, to marry a, a woman, the, the woman's family would have to give a whole bunch of gifts. It was uh, called the dowry. It was, you know, and the more dowry you had, the, you know, hey, the, the, the man was like, yeah, I kind of like that one, you know. wasn't always based on looks like we like today, you know. But back then it was the dowry, and, and she, she sacrificed that as part of her culture. She basically was saying, I guess I'm going to stay a single person now. It cost her many things to do this. It was an act of true worship. So what do we do as an act of true worship? Well, we do many things. It involves our time, our effort, our energy, and yes, again, our money. All good things that we should be doing, but ultimately, what does the Lord really want? Well, Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That, this is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed or do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to, te- uh, able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will if you truly want to worship then we have to become a sacrifice every day we give ourselves over to his service as we go about our lives lord what do you want me to accomplish today as i'm in my job whatever it is teacher mechanic secretary or i'm sorry administration admin person get myself in trouble here 
executive, whatever level you are, you know, whatever at. Lord, as I'm going through my job, help me do your will. If there's something you want me to say or listen to somebody or do something, what do you want me to do? I am the living sacrifice that brings God's glory today. That's how we should be waking up and what we should be thinking about. Now back to to Genesis 22, verse 6. It says, Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And it's interesting. Isaac would have carried the wood up the mountain for his father. It's just the way that it would have worked. And I'm loving this because Brandon's coming that age where I can start telling him to go do stuff. I mean, asking him to go do stuff. (laughs) And he does it for the most part, you know. So Isaac, the son, would have carried the wood up. Man. Reminds me of Jesus carrying the cross, the beam of the cross, as he's going through Jerusalem up to the mountain. Yeah. Hmm. Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, that's a legitimate question, right? Abraham hasn't been really, I'm sure that journey was very quiet as they were going. Abraham carried the burden himself. And, you know, don't let anyone tell you, you know, you know, oftentimes we do this in life. We carry the burden ourselves. Instead of talking to other people, we just put it, you know, we just stay quiet so they get up there. Where's the, you know, where's the sacrifice, Isaac says? You know, this is the first time a lamb is mentioned in the Bible. A lot of firsts in this chapter. And the first place the lamb is mentioned in the, in the New Testament is John 1.29. It says, but where is the lamb for, uh, or it's in John 1.29. But here Isaac says, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I love the King James Version that it translates here a little differently. It shows that, you know, what I think Abraham was probably feeling. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. In John, it says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. It's interesting that the first time the word lamb appears in the New Testament, it answers the question from the first time the lamb was mentioned in the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? There's the lamb. And the two went on together, scriptures say. Now, somewhere along the way, I think Abraham told Isaac he was a sacrifice on the side of the mountain. Abraham would have been 133 years old, Isaac around 33 years, and Isaac very well could have overpowered his father at any time. Now, being an old youth pastor, I knew that I could uh, wrestle the kids, and they didn't really realize if they could really turn it on, you know, but I knew pressure points, so I could take them down pretty easily, you know. Isaac could have taken down Abraham, I think. But he went as a willing sacrifice, just as Jesus went willingly. In Philippians 2.8, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming 
obedient to death, even death on the cross. Genesis 22.9, it says, When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This, this just, I mean, this, from a parent's perspective, this had to be the hardest thing. He trusted God. Now, it doesn't mean he enjoyed the process. It means he probably worked through the pain. Sometimes God allows us to go through something, and God is not enjoying it, just like we're not enjoying it, but Jesus was willing. Jesus was willing. But I don't think he looked forward to the cross. See, God is about eternity. So sometimes we go through difficult things here, so it will be better there. Especially better for someone else, possibly. Just as I like to discipline my children. Oh, wait, did I say like to discipline my children? No, I hate disciplining my children. In fact, uh, my son left something out and, uh, last night, and I'd already asked him if he'd put it away. Uh, outside, he was playing and, and stuff, and my wife goes, uh, yeah. I go, why is that side of the garage open? Was it open all night? And she goes, no, no, this was just left out, and I'm putting it back up. And I go, well, you get the fuss at him this time, not me. You know, because, you know, I don't want to always be the bad guy in a sense here. But, uh, you know, God doesn't like that. But, uh, you know, but sometimes we put them through a difficult time from a certain perspective. But we're doing this for a reason, because they become great adults, right? That's why we discipline our children. But right now, it, it just, you know, hurts them to have to put something away. I mean, literally, you know. But, you know, Grayson, my three-and-a-half-year-old, we ask him to do something. Sometimes he'll just go, I'm so tired. And he's so, and he's so cute when he does it, you know. But, but you're just like, man, you know. But sometimes we have to go through the pain because of the love of the Father. Even though we go through the pain of difficulty, you know, pain of discipline, and it might be difficult, God is there with us and loves us. If we don't suffer with Christ, we don't belong to Christ. In 1 Peter 5.10, it says, And the God of all grace, who called you to the eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and stand fast. So he puts us through a trial for a certain period of time and then reminds us why he loves us and then shows us why we went through the trial, and usually it's for his glory. Now, not always does he show us why we go through stuff. We just have to trust God. I'm going through this for a reason, and we may never know, but sometimes we may end up knowing. You know, my, a, friend of I, a friend of mine and I, we used to play basketball all the time, and that's when I was a lot skinnier, okay? I got my exercise in. But we, we played with this guy. It was his best friend, and his best friend was not a uh, Christian, and he played basketball hard. I mean, he set a pick. It was like a brick wall. And we were only playing two-on-two. And there's times I'd turn around, and I'm coming around, and all of a sudden, he's just standing there. And it would knock me to the floor. It was like hitting a wall. And it would just hack me off. I'm like, dude, we're playing two-on-two. You don't do a little softer pick. You know, just hold me back or something. Don't, you know, I'm a little older than you are. You know, they were high school age. And we just went through that. And and the the friendship and all that was was kind of difficult in some ways and stuff. But it wasn't until years later we got the call. He accepted Jesus. And he goes, it was because of what you and the dean were doing back in your youth ministry years of why I became a Christian. And it was just like, 
Oh. Now, that wasn't a terribly difficult situation. That was just a little pain from falling down. But you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes we go through stuff and we won't, you know, we'll find out later. Sometimes we, we don't find out at all. So 1 Peter 5.10, it says, And by the grace, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And then it goes on in Genesis 22.10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out, from, uh, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear, your, fear God because you have not withheld me, your son, your only son. Now I want to point out something to, to bring in something James says in, uh, in James 2. And I know today I'm bringing in a lot of other scriptures, but it's important. This passage is so important because it brings out, you know, uh, brings out so many other parts of the Bible. Genesis 22 does. James 2, it says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did, in other words, works, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was, call, uh, he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, Martin Luther, you know, had such a hard time with this that he, you know, flat out rejected the book of James as uninspired by Christ and uninspired by the Holy Spirit he, because he thought James was teaching salvation through works. And that's not what James was doing. I don't think he's doing that. I think he was agreeing with what Paul said, you know, in the, uh, the Apostle Paul, by saying it a different way, or what Jesus said when he said, you will know them by their fruit. When we're really into something, people, I mean, uh, how many of you guys know that I like Hawaii? Now, how do you know that? Well, in the summer, I wear flip-flops all year, you know. In fact, I, the other day, it was raining. I was wearing my flip-flops, and somebody goes, why are you wearing flip-flops? I'm going, I'm trying to convince God to give me a, whole, you know, a, a church on the beach in Hawaii, but it's not working, okay? But I'm just saying, you guys know that by the fruit, by the, my clothes, by the, you know, that the, we go over there and so forth. Now, equate that to Christianity. How do people know we're a Christian? Because we run around going, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Well, some people do, and then you look at their fruit, and you go, oh, great. But really, it's by our fruit, how we treat other people, how we react to certain situations. That's what James is talking about here. We're not saved by our, our good works, but we start good works because we're saved. You see, they go hand in hand. Our works don't count as anything, as Paul said, it's all rubbish, until we're actually saved. Our works are our fruit. It's what we accomplish in this life. And this is what James was saying. Abraham just demonstrated it through faith. He, just, you know, he didn't just say he believed. He actually showed it and trusted God. It says, now I know that you fear God, verse 12, you know, sometimes we're tested so God knows and the world knows who we belong to. Jesus knows, but he wants us to know and he wants the world to know. 
Verse 13, it says, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. And, and to this day, it is said, on the mountain the Lord, uh, mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham had clued into the fact that this was a foreshadowing of what was to come, that God revealed the gospel to Abraham. We've talked about that before, and Paul talks about that in Galatians 3.5. It says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. In other words, he told Abraham what would happen. All nations would be blessed through you, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God preached the gospel to Abraham. Some think through the stars and stuff. We've talked about that before. But even Jesus said in John 8, uh, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He, he saw it and was glad. Now, what did Abraham know about Christ? Or when did he know about Christ? When God preached the gospel to him. When God told him about it. Right here in Genesis 22, I think. The prophecy here. It goes on as we finish up here. Verse 15, it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as sands of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You see, again, everyone is blessed through the Messiah that comes through Abraham. Now, where is Isaac? Did Abraham leave him? No, I think the Holy Spirit just kind of leaves him out of the narrative until later. Of course, he comes down with him. In fact, we don't see him again until chapter 24 uh, when, when he sees his bride. And if you're connecting the dots here, may even kind of give you a little bit of shivers here. Isaac is a type of Christ. Christ is sacrificed on the cross, and when will we see him next? Hmm. When he sees his bride. Who's the bride? The church. You see the gap there? You kind of see the foreshadowing there. The believers, the fingerprints of God are all over this chapter. Now, verse 20 through 24, I'm not going to read. I mean, you can, but I'm just going to slaughter the name, so I'm just going to skip them. Um, but the only one you really need to remember at this point is Rebecca. She becomes the bride of Isaac later on. And this is where the story will start to focus. It'll switch the focus onto Isaac and Rebecca. And in the line of Christ, that, that God will stay with. And, the, and Lord willing, we'll get to chapter 23 and chapter 4 next week, and uh, we'll go through both of them. But the, the typology is amazing in the next chapter. So it kind of begins in chapter 22, but it kind of keeps going in 23 and 24, and we see the, the fingerprints of God and talking about Christ and all that kind of stuff in the next two chapters. So I am out of time. Uh, out of time. So, Josh, we're going to forgo the worship this morning to end with. Uh, I love the worship team, but uh, that way we're not too far over. So why don't you stand and let's uh, pray to finish up. Lord, you are, you are an amazing God that how you can connect all the dots. Uh, 
It's hard for us sometimes to see all the dots, and we thank you for making it so obvious in certain chapters in, in your word that through the work of the Holy Spirit that the, the scriptures have lasted this many years, that uh, they were written so long ago that we can read them today and understand them. We thank you for foreshadowing uh, the death of Christ on the cross to make us holy, to make us one of yours, and that we would turn around and look out and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do tomorrow that brings glory to you? That the fruit of my life would be worthy, would be tasteful, would be what other people want to see and, and be with. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you this week when you turn to him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week.